Hello, everybody, and welcome back to El Cafecito on this Tuesday, December 4th. This episode is going to be a little bit long, so I apologize for that. But it's on the Brazilian election and what a Jair Bolsonaro presidency is going to mean for Brazil. Uh, so you can imagine there is a lot to talk about. So on October 28, 2018, Brazil's long election finally came to an end with Jair Bolsonaro becoming the president-elect, taking home 55% of the popular vote. If you've been reading the news at all, you've probably seen his name pop up a few times. He's been characterized by some as the best thing to happen to Brazil, especially considering the amount of scandals that have stained Brazil's last presidencies. And on the other hand, you have other people and the media painting him as a right-wing extremist, um, essentially naming him a tropical Trump. On November 22nd, Braza, the Brazilian Student Association here at the University of Toronto, hosted a panel in collaboration with the Latin American Studies program, in which three Brazilian UFT professors and a member of the Brazilian Consul sat down to discuss the elections. Having many questions still lingering in my head, I decided to sit down the next day with Braza President Pedro Melo and Braza Events Coordinator Leonardo Consenza to discuss further on the election and the future of Brazil, essentially. So here is that conversation. Okay, so Leo, I was wondering if you could explain to us who were the two main opponents in this election, what were their stances? Um, so not really looking over the first steps of the election, really like the lot, what it came down to in the last few weeks of the campaigns. Okay, so in the in the second round, we had the, for, the, for, the front runner, which was Jair Bolsonaro from the Social Liberal Party, which is a right-leaning party. And against him, Fernando Haddad from the Workers' Party, or the PT, as we call it in Portuguese, um, which is a center-left, left-winning party. And um, Fernando Haddad was a former mayor of São Paulo. And he, he comes from this tradition of the Workers' Party, which is the party of of Lula, which is the previous president of Brazil before um, Dilma, and Dilma was also from the Workers' Party, and um, now the president is Temer because she was involved in a, in a scandal, and then this led to her impeachment, and now Michel Temer, her vice president, is now the president of Brazil. And in this um, contentious party dichotomy between the Workers' Party and a general anti-workers' party um, feeling was the general tension that led to this this election, which led to the, the victory of Jair Bolsonaro. So from yesterday, a lot of the, the panelists uh, made a point to bring up the intense polarization that this election created. Now, you guys were both in Brazil over the summer. Can you guys comment on this polarization? Do you agree with the panelists who were discussing? Did you feel that Brazil was really polarized, continues to be very polarized? I think uh, one of the panelists yesterday mentioned that polarization began to happen in Brazil back in 2010 when there was bus tariff protest in Sao Paulo and that spread throughout the country. Uh, after that uh, followed the unveil of Operação Lava Jato, uh, Operation Car Wash, that 
According to Professor Mariana Prado, the polarization really started there. Now, I don't see it as the starting point of it. What I see as the starting point is um, what the Workers' Party in Brazil in its 13 years in power created some tensions from lacking of policies that are not only inclusive for the marginalized populations, but for the country as a whole. And then like most specifically at the expense of the middle class. So the middle class really felt that push and needed to actually take a position on whether or not to continue and keep up with the Workers' Party. So you don't think that the Operation Car Wash, which, by the way, was a huge investigation that sought to prosecute corruption, and the people who were mostly affected by this operation were people from the Workers' Party. And then we actually ended up having Lula, who's serving a 12-year sentence now. We ended up having Dilma impeached. Partially. So, actually, most of the, the politicians investigated in Operation Lava Jato, Operation Car Wash, um, weren't from the Workers' Party. Most of the, the, the parties in the Brazilian parliament are involved in, corru- in some, somewhat, some form of corruption scandal. However, the Workers' Party got most traction in, in this operation because of the figure of President Lula. So he's a central figure in Brazilian politics since the democratization period in Brazil because he represented the social movements and the unions. He got a lot of traction generally from the working population and his social policies had a, um, generally paralyzed the Brazilian electorate. Most importantly, actually, the the Workers' Party in 2002, it came with a platform of ethics. So one of its its main um, points was being an an ethical party, of being a clean party that wasn't involved in corruption scams. Um, However, many corruption scandals broke uh, broke out after that. The Mensa loan was the big one, um, which actually happened during the Lula government. And then now with Operation um, Car Wash, you had the, the second big corruption scandal where videotapes of um, um, recordings of Lula talking to Dilma, which is also the ex-president of Brazil, um, regarding certain illegal indications for the chief of staff. So um, these these media ploys that were were employed by Sergio Moro, uh, Judge Sergio Moro, which is the the judge that was in charge of Operation Car Wash and now is the minister, this will be the the next minister of justice in the, the government of Jair Bolsonaro gained a lot of traction in the Brazilian media. So that's why um, Lula ha- was such a central uh, central figure in Operation Car Wash, and that's also, that also leads to why he wasn't able to run for president, because now he's in jail. So I'm seeing two stories. So you've got on the one side, it's an issue of political agendas, basically, mm-hmm. and the middle class feeling that it's not being addressed. And on the other side, it's what you were touching upon, Leo, which is basically the left becoming so enveloped in these corruption scandals, which is actually something that one of the panelists brought up yesterday, was that Bolsonaro kind of rode that wave. So the rise of the right was mostly happening because people were disappointed in the left. Well, the thing is, the the corruption scandals were, um, the right-leaning parties were also big in the corruption scandals. Mm-hmm. The center the center parties like PMDB, which is the Brazilian Democratic Movement, which is actually one of the, the, the parties that um, existed during the dictatorship period, was one of the parties that were most affected by corruption scandals. But people don't talk about it. 
And the reason why, and I believe it's, um, it's, it's historical in the Brazilian society, is that the Brazilian elites fear the poor. And why so? Our history of colonialism ingrained in the minds of the elites that the, that the poor should be suppressed into this um, substatus, right? So not only the poor, but the minorities. And what happened with, with the Lula government was that um, the poor were able to see for the first time, the lower classes were able to see for the first time a member from their own class being in the presidency, which was President Lula. He was, he was a former leader of unions in the Paulista ABC, that's the region, that's one of the most industrialized regions in Brazil. And he rose up to power in this platform of ethics. And, and being from the lower classes is the important point here, because um, he, uh, he came from a clean slate, let's say. And um, being corrupted by the system imploded the expectations that a lot of people had um, for, a, for a leader that represented these lower classes. Um, I think that in Brazilian society, we already expect to see the elites involved in these corruption scandals and the, and the political elites to be involved in these, um, this micro-politics of evil, let's say. Right. Um, and then having this, this, this candidate that was supposedly a person that was, that was honest, that came from, from the working classes, also um, become uh, theoretically a corrupt man is discouraging, right? So, so that's why corruption scandals with the Workers' Party got a lot of traction, and, and that's why Bolsonaro was able to lead this, this wave of, of anti-petismo, that's what we call it, so anti-Workers' Party. Um, a lot of people that were, uh, voted for, for Jair Bolsonaro weren't necessarily supporting his policies, they just didn't want to see what was there before. Right, so it was a cry for change, and Bolsonaro somehow represented that change. Yes, um, as was said in the, the, the panel, and I do agree with that, Bolsonaro is the, the, the famous political outsider, just uh, this, the, the same phenomenon that led Trump to, the, to, to government and also led um, Alberto, um, Alberto Fujimori in the 1990s in Peru to government. He wasn't originally involved in, the, in, the, in politics. But the difference is Jair Bolsonaro is involved in politics. He's been a congressman since the 90s. And he's always been there. And he's considered um, part of the low clergy in the Brazilian parliament. And he, ne he never, he never um, got a lot of attentions beyond his, um, his, the, the, his, the, the polemic things he said. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when he said that this congresswoman shouldn't, um, shouldn't, uh, he, uh, shouldn't be raped because she doesn't deserve it. Um, that, 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 no, sorry, what, what did he say? She said that uh, she that was he, too ugly to She was rape. too yeah. ugly to be yeah. raped. And all these these uh, these scandals that led him to uh, that pe people I I mean at least in my social circles debated about that right like what is this man saying he's insane but he never got a lot of national att attention but as Pedro said in 2013 he was able to ride this wave of anti everything that's there and everything that's there is resumed to two big points not only the workers party but corruption in general so unfortunately the the workers party was um in power when all this uh when when all this the the when the the corruption scandal started to um to be unveiled and and then it was it was linked to this corruption um problem in brazil which is systemic right. and then bolsonaro was able to perfectly ride this wave so I'm also trying to get a picture now of who is Bolsonaro's base of support. Who were the main um, people 
backing him up in, during these elections. Um, during the discussion yesterday, they mentioned something about evangelicals. And then you also had a professor of sociology who came up with all of these statistics and kind of showing the disparity in political opinions throughout Brazil. Can one of you maybe like touch upon that? Um, so the supporters are the people that I mentioned, the middle class the, and the upper class who discouraged by the actions of uh, the Workers' Party kind of had found Bolsonaro as a response and reaction to the, to the Workers' Party who has been in power for 13 years in Brazil and has, has done um, little effort to address their demands, the, the middle class demands, and fulfill their programs at the expense of the middle class and um, upper classes. Now, the, 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 the main base of supporters are those people who, I, I believe someone touched on this yesterday, they are educated people. Um, so these are people who have completed high school. These are people who have um, uh, university degrees. Um, so these are not uneducated people who are, because let's, I don't want to say um, that because they're benefiting from certain government projects, they will vote for the candidate by fear of losing out on their projects. I tried to avoid this analysis of, of clumping Jair Bolsonaro's um, electorate into one big mass of conservative people, which I, I don't think it's exactly true. If you, init if you initially look at the map, as was, as was showed yesterday, was that um, if you look at Brazil, generally the, 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 the Brazilian Northeast voted in mass for Haddad, which is from the Workers' Party, and then generally the Brazilian South and Southeast voted for Bolsonaro. But if you look at other um, different uh, maps that um, divided into cities, for example, the more urbanized regions voted for Haddad, while the less ur urbanized region voted, voted, voted for Bolsonaro. So the, um, the differences are a little bit more complex than just cons cons conservatives, right? Um, although, yes, evangelicals tend to vote um, more towards Bolsonaro than um, towards Haddad. Because a lot of people think that way. I think it's important to put it. And then I can just like no, because I, I also I I I mentioned that, but then I forgot to mention that the generalization is a problem because it doesn't mean that there everyone that voted for him sympathized for the ideology, you know. Well, that's exactly everything. what I was gonna say. Yeah, right? exactly. Because I just think it's important because he said like what people people clump it into a thing, and it's not exactly that. It's, it's a little bit more than complex that. than that. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, Bolsonaro's electorate is very educated. Um, there are people with with university degrees, that you were saying, but then you've also got this this politician who's making very very scandalous comments, um, as you were saying, Leo. So what I'm trying to get to is that despite this this electorate being highly educated, their support for Bolsonaro came from a place of words are just words, which is what. Um, one of the professors was saying yesterday that, okay, yes, this guy is saying a bunch of outlandish things, but that's not the way, that's not going to be reflected in his policy. That's not the way it's going to happen. 
What's wrong with yeah. that way of thinking? If, if there's anything yeah. wrong with that at all. So I, I saw a lot of educated people supporting Bolsonaro and the, the scandalous things he says. And I feel that that is related to a phenomenon that was touched upon in the and during the, um, the, ele- the the panel yesterday, which was the, which is this idea of the fearful right. Right. Before the uh, after the dictatorship, we had a general fear of uh, people had a general fear of claiming themselves as putting themselves as right leaning. Right. Um, Even as liberals. So you tended to be um, towards the center and center left, but never a right leaning um, person because of this memory of the dictatorship period. And Bolsonaro was exactly the person that was vocalizing all this. I'm not going to say oppression, but this. um, uh this avoidance of the right. Um, so he was able to vocalize all this uh, this, this repressed emotion, I'd say, um, of, of the right. And um, even, even, even people that are homophobes, homophobes that are racists, like this, this, hap- this is systemic and happens a lot in Brazil. And I've seen this happen so many times. And it, it, and it, and it happens not only in, um, among the elites, it happens everywhere. So he was able to vocalize all these, these the, the, this, repressed um, anguish not only against corruption, against the systemic corruption that happened in the Brazilian parliament, but also the Workers' Party, which generally generally tended to benefit the, the lower classes, and also these um, these social issues that date back to the, the dictatorship period and even before that. He worked as this, uh, this magnet for all these different factors uh, that united... Um, People that thought in very different ways, however, were able to identify with certain specific things that he would he was he would say. So, although he he was he was a homophobe, um, we had even um, LGBT movements that were supporting Bolsonaro, right? Wow. Um, which is which is bizarre, but they were supporting supporting Bolsonaro because, um, okay, he talks about all these. Uh, he's a homophobe. However, he's against corruption. However, he's uh, he's against the Workers Party. So I th- I think it's a, a ranking of priorities. People would just handpick, cherry pick the things that he said and um, vote for him. And I, I also heard that um, his he he also had a very heavy campaign around the issue of security and the issue of being hard on crime, um, of getting Cal Blanche to to drug traffickers, giving more power to police officers. Um, was that an issue that also sort of overrode all of these uh, politically incorrect um, and discriminatory comments that he would say? Well, yes. And um, I, I, coming from Rio, it's, it's important to talk about this because right now um, Rio is undergoing a military intervention, um, which was signed off by President Temia, and uh, which was a political move. Rio, as you can see in a lot of statistics, is not the, the most murderous um, capital in, in Brazil um, by far. So the Northeast ch- tends to be the most violent region in Brazil. However, the perception that the media um, created of the violence in Rio led to this military intervention, and that says a lot, right? So um, uh, this this political move got a lot of traction towards the, 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 the Temer government because um, he was seen as the person that was trying to to solve the security issue in Rio, which isn't even that bad compared relative to the other regions in, in, in Brazil. Uh, the people that vote, they want to see action. They want to see something happening. And um, after several years of inaction, 
um, I feel there's a, there's a need now for um, extreme change. And this extreme change could come in some form of, of, of militarism, right? As was seen in the intervention and as, and as reflected by what Bolsonaro says. But also to comment on that, um, I'm from Natal and just a study came out uh, that it, uh, Natal is the fourth most dangerous city in the world with a homicide rate of 102 per 100,000 inhabitants. That statistic, what it shows me is that people don't vote for the candidate on the premise of one uh, fulfilling one of the, his policies or because he advocates for security, for more, um, for a safer country. Because Natal is a capital city in the nor- uh, northeast of the northeast state, Rio Grande do Norte. And historically, we have um, always elected the Workers' Party um, for the presidency. And, and this last campaign, the governor, I believe, is the only um, governor for the Workers' Party elected in the region. Um, so that shows that it's, it's not because of one... It, it's... What I'm trying to say is that it's not one policy that makes people vote for him because if it were, then we should be like the most, the Bolsonaro should get the most votes in the town. And it's not the case. So I, I feel like it's, it's more of a general sentiment against the Workers' Party in general. And that again goes back to my initial point that um, because of like, the, the, the failures of the Workers' Party in addressing the middle classes and, and other uh, strats of society. What do you guys expect from a Bolsonaro presidency? Leo, you were touching upon, you know, this um, accumulation of, of kind of explosive change. Do you see this turning into a violent administration? I mean, of course, I, I'm 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 fearful of what might happen to my country. Um, certain things are easier to change than others. For example, foreign policy is something that can be easily changed in Brazil. I feel um, because it's less contentious. People don't really um, mind. Um, other than I guess the Venezuela case, which is very specific, um, people tend not to argue about foreign policy. So it's, this is something that he'll be able to easily. Um, navigate towards his own benefit, although um, it has already backfired. So for example, the last, um, the last week, what happened was that um, Bolsonaro announced that he wanted to change the Brazilian consulate um, embassy from um, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And this backfired in the, Egypt- in the, uh, in the um, Middle Eastern nations, for example, because um, Brazil was going to have a conference in Egypt, and it was canceled two days prior to the um, to the event, um, and that is that is obviously a sign of of um, of, of Egyptian of, of the Egyptian government, but also Middle Eastern nations in general against these forms of policy, and and again this this adds to the to the to the domestic sphere as well because he's allied with a wide range of conservatives, so not only evangelicals but the agro business, 
and the people that tend to support the more extreme security measures. So as was said in the, in the, in the panel, um, the, the BBB um, section of the parliament, which, is, which stands for Bullets, Bible, and Beef. And what, what reflects in domestic policy is that the evangelicals want uh, a change in the embassy, right? Because they have this messianic view that Jerusalem, it's a religious interpretation of, of, the, of the original land of, Jews, of, of Israel. However, the agribusiness is, uh, is affected by this. Um, and why? Because Brazil is actually the number one exporter of halal meats in the world, which is something that people don't tend to, to not notice. I had no idea. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and this affects their relation with the Egyptian nations, right? So this, although Bolsonaro could easily um, uh, change foreign policy, it also affects his domestic uh, allies. So this, uh, this just adds to my point that he's allied with this wide range of conservatives and it's going to be really hard to, to govern by appeasing all of them at the same time. So he's going to have to make concessions. And if he's not going to make concessions, the, the government is going to go to a halt. And I think that's the, the worst scenario, the extreme case scenario, where the government's not going to be able to govern. And um, I don't think he's going to do that. He's gonna tend to be more moderate and appease these 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 big conservative forces in the parliament. Now, one thing that I'm curious about is, uh, Brazil has like thirty parties, and the way Brazil governs is through coalitions. So, how does that? How do you see that working in the Bolsonaro presidency or or if you can maybe explain a bit what that is because especially here you know we don't really understand that concept how does that work and what does that mean okay so what happens in Brazil uh, is that we have a multi-party system and the parties they are not ideological and that's the the key point here so um, politicians join parties not because of their ideology but because of their interests so what this party is going to be able to benefit me so is this party going to be able to give me enough funds for for my for my for the elections period um, is this party going to give me enough benefits and contacts inside the Congress? I feel that um, politicians, they, they, they enter parties because of personal interests ra rather than ideological purposes. There are, there are a very small number of parties in Brazil that are actually ideological. And one of them is the, the, the Socialist Party, which is called PESOL, uh, which is actually a dissidence from the Workers' Party. And a couple of smaller ones, like the New Party, which is called Novo, which is a, a, tends to be a, which is a, a neoliberal party and it's openly neoliberal and because of this lack of ideology among parties this means that um, politicians tend to circulate a lot in between parties and and this is a problem because um, to be able to govern you have to be able to have a, a majority in the parliament right and if, if politicians are always transitioning between parties you can't really capture the the majority so um, well, this is done by distributing minist uh, ministries to each section uh, according, like proportionally to each um, um, party. Um, this was done historically with the democratic movement, which is the PMDB, which I have already mentioned, which is a centrist party. And actually has been governing since the, the dictatorship period. It has been in the, the governments, every single government since democratization. So from the neoliberal government of, of Fernando Henrique Cardoso and up to the interventionist center-left government of Juma Rousseff. 
So this is a party that has been that spans that cross cuts Brazilian politics since the democratization period, and with a reduction in this uh, in the the centrist power um, and a a greater polarization in this uh, in this um, in the Brazilian parliament, this the system of coalition presidency, which is to allocate ministries, for example, for example, allocate ministries um, proportionally to every um, party might be a little bit harder because you won't be able to attract as many people from the center because they're, they tend to be more polarized in the different parties, which doesn't mean that they're ideologically polarized. It just means that um, that they tend to uh, they they tend to be more attracted towards ex extremist ideas, but not ideologies, which is something very important to notice. Because Bolsonaro, although he seems to be, he has very extreme ideas. He's not an ideologue. He doesn't have um, a a consistent platform. He uses what um, what has been um, circulating in the media as fire hosing, which is a strategy that Trump uses as well. So it's it's a it's, it's a rhetorical but also a political strategy, which is to just say things, say things like blatantly wrong things sometimes, um, polemic things over and over again. And this over this uh, this overflow of information is really hard to fact check. And it's an important um, instrument of, of politics because what it does is that this allows the person that is employing the strategy to control the truth. Um, whatever he says, whatever is being fact-checked is not important. Whatever he says is important. So the Brazilian parliament is, is polarizing towards these extremist political strategies that sometimes don't mean much. They're just extremists to be extremists, to counter whatever is in the other side. So I think it's going to be really hard to um, to use the regular systems that have been employed since the democratization period. And this could lead, again, as I said, to Bolsonaro appeasing his, his conservative uh, base or a general paralysis in the system. Pedro, what do you expect from a Bolsonaro presidency? Um... Not from a Bolsonaro presidency, because he would not govern the country by himself. What we saw with Operation Lava Jato is a stronger uh, judiciary system in Brazil that, was never that would never challenge the political elite before. Um, what we also saw is a renovation of the Congress um, that has a record of um, the 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 biggest renovation um, since the 1994 election, with 50% uh, of the seats being renovated. We also saw that the Senate had a significant renovation. And these two allied, so a, a stronger ju judicial system and a renovation in the Congress. We had 27 candidates who were involved in car operation car wash who were running for re-election but did not get re-election which means that they lost uh, photo privilegiado and for those of you who don't know uh, photo privilegiado is a prerogative of jurisdiction of the Supreme Court that is given to parliament members governor mis government ministers president and the vice president and members of um, the higher courts a special jurisdiction so that they can only be uh, only the Supreme Court can carry out an investigation imprisonment and trial 
So at the lower court, they can't. They're they're like almost untouchable. So with that being said, those twenty four candidates who did not get reelected, re- they're gonna be then be investigated and tried if if they find enough proofs that they were involved in corruption. So I see some hope um, that there will be changes um, to fight corruption in the country. Now, what the opponents of Bolsonaro have been constantly saying is that they will resist and they, they will be carefully watching um, what uh, Bolsonaro will be doing. So I believe that a government that takes too much of an extreme turn against human rights or anything um, that really can have cause a bigger impact in the population will be vigilated. Um, so you think that Brazil still has a strong system of checks and balances? Not necessarily, but what I'm saying is that it's developing. It's in the face of development, and I think that it's at this point we we saw the efficiency of the Supreme Court uh, carrying out the investigations and and pu- punishing uh, certain politicians for wrongdoings that can certainly be applied. I'm not I'm not saying that the Supreme Court will have the ultimate say if it comes to that um, but what I'm saying is that the entity is there and it's um, stronger than prior to the operation and I think that that gives us a, a little hope you know for the worse if it comes to that also just to add on to that the not only the the judicial system of Brazil will play an important role in keeping the government checked um, but um, he, he can't perform any action without the consent except for those minor actions that the professor mentioned yesterday that he can do you know that, that, that he can do un- under the table kind of thing that she actually mentioned concerned um, about those um, but for major changes, I think that um, having this renovation of the Congress and having him one dependent on the BBB that Lau mentioned previously, and two having um, still uh, quite a representation of the Workers Party in Congress that will maintain kind of like a stability of the government because he will not be able to govern without. Um, a majority in Congress or Senate. One last question, because I know, Leo, you have to leave soon. I was curious um, as to if you thought that you if, if you thought that there was a concern or an issue that wasn't addressed in depth yesterday or something that you wish the panelists would have uh, given more attention to or perhaps a question that they didn't answer that you would have liked to see an answer. Well, I missed um, I missed the ideological dimension of the debates, and it's understandable because we had lim- a limited amount of time, and we we're talking specifically about the Bolsonaro phenomena, which is it tends to be not 
as ideological as I mentioned. Um, but I feel that there was um, there was we we were missing a little bit of hope in talking about what are the alternatives that we have against Bolsonaro, because now we're going to have four years of 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 probably a reduction in the rights that were established throughout the Workers' Party um, government. And um, and I feel that we have to discuss right now what are the what are the left wing uh, alternatives and the left wing um, support that we need to have against these these uh, this 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 rollback that's going to happen throughout the four years in the Bolsonaro government. Um, I'm not talking only about hope, but about um, but about organization. Right? How we're how we're gonna organize civil society against this movement? Um, I believe that everyone um, sees Bolsonaro as a threat, as a threat not only to the minorities by his use of discourse, and as was discussed in the the panel and very well put, his his discourse is the problem is not only his discourse but the fact that he's high up. He's now the president of the republic. He's he's not just a, a congressman. He's not just um, a, a a YouTuber. He's the president of the republic. A, a person like that saying certain things has a trickle down effect in society. It changes the way people act because this sets the the precedent for people to act in certain ways that are that that um that weren't permissible before. He sets the tone. I think that's important. And um, I guess what we what was what was what was missing, I feel, was how are we going to be able to organize not only in the in domestically but internationally against such a threat? Um, uh, the the so, the social movements have already responded to that. They will always be active. But what about the left wing politicians? What about the centrist politicians? Um, I feel that we're missing this debate. We're missing the debate on the alternatives. Um, not only for this, uh, for the sense of hope, but the sense of 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 of, of um, but of a protection of a, of, a, of an extreme rollback of our rights. So then, let me ask you this: How do you feel about the U.S. Um, giving full support for Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro basically saying, like, "Yeah, U.S., we have your backs. Long live America! Woohoo!" Like. How do you feel as though that, where the biggest power of like, the leader of the free world or whatever, supporting this this um, regime that, you think is going to be really really unhealthy for the country. Well, it's uh, I I guess it's, it's not it's not a big of a change if we think about it really. Um, it's a change in the rhetoric because now the president has a a. F- fine-tuned rhetoric with the president of of the u.s which is donald trump um they're both uh extremists they both um use fire hosing as a tactic however um it's not going to represent big change in what has been happening the u.s has been a hegemon in in latin america since the early uh, 20th century right um the the neoliberal policies that were implemented in late the late 20th century in, in in latin america were because of the U.S., right? Because because of U.S. backing of the IMF and the World Bank and the, the bailing out of the the different uh, debt crisis that happened in Latin America, and in Brazil specifically, we have seen this neoliberal tendency permeating all of the governments, starting from the the government 
the, the end of the, the Itamar Franco government uh, following the impeachment process of Collor, and then with the deepening of these neoliberal policies with uh, the Fernando Henrique Cardoso presidency. And the neoliberal policies, they didn't really change in the, in the Lula government. Although people see him as a, um, as a big change in Brazilian politics, it again goes back to what I was saying of, of the fear of the masses that the elites have. This guy represents, he comes from the masses and therefore we must fear him. But really, he, wasn't, he didn't really change much. Uh, although uh, he he continued his his neoliberal policy, the neoliberal policies that have been had been going on in Brazil. Um, however, with some form of social change, some form he created a social net to be able to support the poorest of the poor that were being affected by these these neoliberal policies. He softened it. It was a soft neoliberal policy, but it was still a neoliberal policy. The same monetary policy that was that was operated under under, under Fernando Henrique Cardoso. And uh, and now we have uh, uh, the the appointment of Paulo Guedes to the Ministry of the Economy. Now it's going to be called the Ministry of Economy because he has been Bolsonaro is has been announcing the creation of super ministries. So he's he's clumping up different ministries into big ones, um, and therefore creating super ministers as they're calling in Brazil. And this man is the classic Chicago boy. And he's going to continue the neoliberal policies that had been going on in the Lula and the FGC, um, um period, and now in the Temer. Um, Dilma was slightly different um, because she was um, a little bit more interventionist with her policies um, regarding the state banks, um, which eventually led to her impeachment. Um, uh, but now we have a, a blatant opening of neoliberal policies and a discourse alignment. Which and that's the important part here, because now we're not just um, we're, we're seeing it the we're seeing the uh, the te- the neoliberal tendency in open air, and I feel maybe that might be good. That might be we're, we're now we're able to see what are the what are the actual effects of these economic policies and of these social policies, because um, I feel that we can expect a rollback in social and social welfare, and. This will lead to a um, to a clearly will lead to an impact in the, the poorest of the poor in Brazil. Um, so we're I, I think Brazil has now the the chance to link right leaning policies to the, the to the bad effects that these policies have led in the region, which happened a lot in Peru in the nineteen nineties, and I I believe will happen now in the Bolsonaro um, government. Wow, so this was has all been a very, very interesting conversation. Um, I mean, how could it not be? Brazil is, is so important. It's the biggest country in Latin America. It's got four I think it has like forty percent of Latin American population and accounts for forty percent of Latin American GDP. I still have so many questions that just don't fit within this hour, you know, from an international relations perspective, which I'm sure y- you share as well. How is Brazil going to deal with the Venezuelan refugee um, crisis? Does Bolsonaro's presidency increase the chances of some form of Latin American military intervention in Venezuela? There's so many things that that are are set into play with with this Bolsonaro election. And I guess that it's just going to have to be one of those cases of of we wait and see. You know, January 1st, that's when it's going to take off. And yeah, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll have another talk 
in February, or no, not February, maybe like in April or May. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. See, see how things have progressed. Um, I'd like to thank the opportunity、um, of talking about my country because, as you said, it's such a complex and there are so many things going on、um, that it's, it's、um, Brazil, that is, is a, is a country that is. Often not talked about that much, at least not from my experience at the university. Part of me says that it's my responsibility to bring that attention to Brazil because, it, as you mentioned, it's, it's such a big country, so important to Latin America. It's the largest, the second largest economy in the American continent. And how come it's often ignored by, by, by like, The international community. It's certainly a very, very interesting country that should get more attention. I agree. Well, Pedro and Leo, thank you so much for joining me today.、Um, I hope that you guys found this conversation to be engaging and、uh, insightful. And、uh, we will see you after the Christmas break.